told that you've gone through uh, one lecture after another. I also was told that Reb Heschel Schechter spoke the way I would with the hellfire and brimstone, with reform, conservative, and he gave exactly my point of view. It's not my point of view. It's uh, those of us that grew up with the Rav. That's what the Rav taught us. And uh, anyone who's a, you know, a Talmud of the Rav who didn't wander into his own uh, field, uh, that's the point of view we'd, we'd probably all take. I don't think there's any difference between us. Excuse me? No, the, the Rav not signing uh, the Yisra on the Board of Rabbis, it's very simple. The Rav wanted to keep the channels of communication open. The question is today, and I can't go into it now, and we're only guessing. I asked Rabban Soloveitchik exactly your question, except in a different form. I said to Rabban, what are we so happy about the fact that um, the Synagogue Council came to an end? I mean, after all, the Rav felt that keeping the channels of communication open was important. And Rabban answered, if my brother would be alive today, he would agree to close down Synagogue Council. How can you sit with people, patrilineal or... Uh, makes you a Jew. Uh, homosexual relations are perfectly okay. Intermarriage is fine. You understand the reform in the conservative Jew of the 50s and the 60s is vastly different than the reform of conservative Jew of the 80s and the 90s. I don't know. That's what Rabban Soloveitchik told me. And this is what I said all along. We who are Talmidim of the Rav and dance to our own tune. We don't let anyone lead us by the nose. We have the most difficult problem because on one hand uh, we know that reform and conservative and deviation undermines Torah and every, you don't have to be a big believer in Torah, just look at the statistics of intermarriage assimilation. And on the other hand, uh, if we break with them altogether, we've totally lost contact with them and maybe, maybe by being in contact we can influence them Litova. And that's, that's our dilemma. And I don't have an easy answer. And the answer, I, for instance, I showed you with the Jewish assembly here, uh, that's the dilemma, head on. And you know something, I think it was handled very well. The Rav, and this is something that you have to understand me very well, the Rav knew students are different. So you know which student the place where, I'm talking about in the rabbinate, and talking about areas of the rabbinate. So it was handled very well. I wouldn't send Aaron Rakefit to speak to Reform and Conservative under that. It could be I'm not the person that I don't want to go and I don't want to lend my name, don't want to lend uh, uh, whatever Torah I have. could be I'd be very hesitant to speak as an equal Reform Conservative. Uh, but Rabbi Luxney was an excellent choice, you understand? Because he works in those circles anyway. So other rabbis turned it to an excellent choice. Now, if he opens his talk, I said, then I certainly have no objection. If, on the other hand, he would speak in a way as if to say, well, I'm orthodox, but conservatives, fine, reform is good, I would have plenty of objection. You follow me, Shlomo? But that's the way I, that's the way I would handle it. Okay, but uh, be it as it may, let's come back to this course and leave Hashkafa for tomorrow. Now, the Mashar is a very famous Mashar. And if you look it up, you'll see it's homiletics. It's the Mashar going off, uh, dashing Pusuk after Pusuk. But the bottom line is that we do everything possible within the halachic framework to help an agunah. We certainly, the Rabbanim certainly, view this as a special mitzvah. And that's what I spoke about last year from the Bacha Chadashot. The Bacha Chadashot quotes uh, that, it, that it goes so far as to say that there's a tradition that kol mati ragunachat kilu bana achat mechuvat Yerushalayim. And there's no doubt in my mind, a younger woman, it's a greater mitzvah because she can have children. An older woman is also a mitzvah because 
there are people who, for a woman, it's hard to, to be alone. Or if to put it a little differently, without getting involved in the whole question of tavla of tamdu, but there are people who function best happily married, and this is a reality of life. Some people don't have to be married. Some people have to be married. It's a reality of life. There's no way to illustrate it, no way to diagram it. If you want, I can contrast it for you. When the Rebbitzin died, there was never even a Havi Amina that the Rebbe would, would, mar- would remarry. Everyone knew that the Rebbe was not going to remarry. I don't know why it was a gut reaction. No one ever even raised the Havi Amina that the Rebbe should remarry. On the other hand, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky remarried very happily. And uh, with Rabbi Yaakov, I can tell you a beautiful story that's uh, it's a meritic story that's worth repeating and understanding. When Rabbi Yaakov's Rebetzin died, I don't remember how old Rabbi Yaakov was. You have to look up uh, the beautiful biography of him that Atzikol put out. It's a very fine biography. Although it has Atzikol problems, they leave out certain facts of his life that are not convenient for them, that he taught a in the Mizrahi in Canada, that, that they leave out. But um, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky probably was in his 60s when his first wife died. There were many Shidduchim offered to him. Many women of tremendous wealth. I mean, after all, a Rebbe doesn't make a living. And money is important in this world. And money is important. So uh, you have a chance to marry. You know, you can fall in love with a rich woman just like a poor woman when everything else is equal. And why not take the wealthy woman? And many Shidduchim offered to him. And it's interesting. He took a woman uh, who was not wealthy, but a very fine Balabatish woman from Toronto. And they had a very, very happy second marriage. She was a modern woman, drove a car. She used to do the shopping. He would come out when he heard the car pulling the driver. come out to help her carry the package into the house. They lived in Muncie. Thousands of people were eyewitnesses to their behavior, their deportment. So they asked Rabbi Yaakov, how did you choose this woman? I mean, after all, a second marriage, you don't have to start, uh, you know, where, where the first marriage, you're going into the unknown. Because uh, no one is... Uh, you know, you're a kid yet. No one knows what you're going to be. But by the time you're in your 60s, you're a known quality. So why did you choose this woman? So many fine women came to you. And Rabbi Yaakov gave an answer. I always repeat this answer. That um, her son was a Torah of boy. And you know, the kids would come to Shia every day. And he always noticed about this boy, he wore a clean shirt every day. And he said, that taught him something about the boy's mother. And that's why he chose that woman. So it's a meritic story. But, but there's no question about it. For a younger woman, it's a bigger mitzvah because of the question of, uh, of, of the children. For an older woman too, I, I don't want to minimize the joy that a person finds in being able to marry. And there are people that have to marry. They cannot function without marriage. So the mashar is a beautiful, beautiful mashar. But to take the mashar out of context, this is criminal. And nevertheless, in modern times, like everything else, we have pseudo, pseudo lamdan. And I, I, I'll tell you, I just, I'll spend, I, I just want to spend a minute. What do I mean by a pseudo lamdan? So you all know, the Gemara says that when they translated the Torah, the Tagum Shivan, uh, they declared a fast day. It's a very sad day. It's one of the fast days in Megillah time, which we don't observe today. But nevertheless, it's there in theory. Why was so sad about translating the Torah? The minute you translate the Torah, it's available to everybody. 
friends and foes. We have the same problem in modern life. Everything is available today in translation, everything is available in encyclopedic form. So when you talk in terms of the Encyclopedia Judaica, or pardon me, the Encyclopedia Talmudica, or the Otsar Poskim, on one hand it's a fabulous achievement. On the other hand, Shulam Aloni can get up in the Knesset and quote certain halachat and sound like a tremendous lamdanit. The same thing with the Mashal. Many people who never studied Masechet Yavamat and have no idea what's involved with, with the last two prakim in particular, with all the intricacies and all the laws and everything about Heteraguna, but when they know the Mashar, they can quote it and suddenly they're changing the world. And this Mashar comes to the fore time and again. It came to the fore at the Feminist Conference in New York. It comes to the fore at the Lavi Conference here. It came to the fore in the justifications for Rabbi Rackman's actions. And the mashar is the mashar. Every word is true. But it's within the halakhic context. And we spoke many times about what does it mean, like Kodavam in a Torah. We spoke about Tosfit. We spoke about Rashi Shita, about the Rambam Shita. Fine, you have to understand it like a Talmud Chacham. But taking the mashar and from there watering down or negating halakhic standards, the distance is very long. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say about last week. Uh, no question. The mitzvah of Atarat if someone would ask me, there are two areas in Psak where the Rabbanim do everything possible if they can to find the Heta. One is Hatarat Aguna and one is Hatarat Mamsa. And there, that's a special klal, a special halacha, a special tradition. Everywhere else in Psak, you know the Mishnah, you know the Gemara in Edi, not the Gemara, you know the Mishnah in Edi. The Mishnah says, I'm Rav Yossi Ben Yuez or Rav Yossi Hashayah. Why? There were three cases he was Matia. So from that Mishnah you see, and it's a whole development, a post like, Shouldn't be matter all the time, shouldn't be machter all the time. You have to go the way your intellect understands, and at Talmud Chacham, each one has a different etiyah. Sometimes you machmas, sometimes you make hill. It depends as you understand the sukya. But on these two areas of Agunim Mamzeret, you try your best to be matter, if it's at all halachically possible. Your approach is different. When you go with a question of kosher gelatin, or using an automatic elevator on Shabbat, Ipso facto, you don't want to be mate. You want to see, can we, can't we? But in your mind, there's no conclusion. When you go with Agunar and Mamzerut, to begin with in your mind, you're trying to say, I hope I can reach a lenient decision. And that's the difference, and that's the mash. And it's 100% axiomatic and basic. Now, then we spoke about uh, Shuvat last week. We, were, we tried to pick up and we spoke about Shuvat, that uh, in each Shuvat it was not a perfect identification, but at least there was enough to go by. And these six examples of putting together the uh, Heteragona. One Shuvat came from the Mabit, which is from a much earlier period, the start of the Achronim. And again, it's typical Jews going around selling. And Eid Echad Mipigai, Mesih Tumau, that two Jews were killed in a certain village named, named Avraham, selling toughish, whatever that means, egos, and we put it together, we're Matia. Another case comes from the Tzemach Tzedek, Rav Nachman Krachmal, the first Tzemach Tzedek, not the Lubavitcher one, the 1600s, and here, of course, it's two men traveling, once again, going to Vienna, Jews were in commerce. It's amazing, time and again and again, it comes up in the truth that until modern times, Jews were in commerce. 
And that's why it's a very true observation that in the state of Israel, we have proven Jewish tradition wrong. Traditionally, Jews were poor soldiers and good businessmen. The state of Israel, we're very good soldiers, but we're terrible, terrible businessmen. And here too, three Jews, two of them married, one not married, they find the bodies, one is a redhead, and everything we spoke about, including the hair, the teeth, which is amazing to me that uh, you you fellas didn't know that the hair and the teeth, this is the way these are all identification in two modern times. When you go into the Israeli army, the first day, what you call the Hayom Shatam Mitchayel, one of the first things they do is they have a, uh, a dental assistant do a map. I don't know if there's a technical word for it, but they map out your teeth. Why do you think they do that? They do that for identification. If anything happens, teeth always remain. So it's very easy to identify a person through the teeth. Now, that's forensic medicine. Of course, today we have much more sophisticated means with DNA. I mean, it's unbelievable what we have today with identification. You can practically get back very little of the body and you can identify through DNA. And the rap that specializes in that, uh, the po- police in Yerushalayim, there's a religious person came in Aliyah from the coast. I happen to know him personally. And he's one of the world's experts in uh, identification, forensic medicine. He lectures all over the world. He's an older man already, but whenever there's a conference of police forensic experts, they call upon the head of the Jerusalem police, Chui to to lecture. So today, we don't have to depend upon teeth as much as we did in the past. But nevertheless, teeth in here survive. The example, a gingy remains a gingy, more or less. Okay. Now, I want to go further. Have another another case from the Tzemach Tzedek. Um, a, a woman whose husband is missing finally brings to the Beitin the following evidence about her husband. And we're, talk, we're talking from the Tzemach Tzedek again, Rabbi, we're talking about the Krachmal Tzemach Tzedek, Menachem Mendel Krachmal, Siman Kuf Gimel. And uh, two people signed a document that her husband was killed in Lublin. And they buried him. And this document, one of the signatures has been certified by the Beitin to be a reliable signature. Now, you see, this concept of certification goes on until today. Uh, all of you know what a certified check means. Okay? A certified document where you have the document authorized it means that the signature, signature is worth that much more. Uh, all of you know when you have to send a document to America, you have to go to the American consul, and they have to certify that that is your signature, that it was signed in front of the vice consul, whatever it is, that they compare signatures, they look at you. They don't let that document out of their hands until they are convinced that you are the person that is signing the document. So here it comes through with one signature certified. Not only that, the woman's sister said she searched all over for this missing man, for her brother-in-law. And she learned that during Chag HaSukkah that year, there was a pogrom in a neighboring community, and they searched, and eight days later, she found the body, she was able to identify the body, and she told two Jews about it and she's certain that these are the Jews that 
sign the document. Now notice, you have here a woman testifying. Why do you need anything else? She says she found the body. But notice, she says it's eight days after the pogrom took place. That means, what do you mean she identified the body? That's the mission we spoke about. That's the halacha we spoke about. At the end of 72 hours, what do you mean you identified the body? Loa Lainu, Rigamoda sets in, those of you that have seen dead bodies and it's not a happy sight, you can't believe how different the body looks after a day or two. So what do you mean? So you see, what do you, what do you mean? It's a problem. That's why her testimony alone doesn't really clinch anything, black and white. But then there's another woman that she already claims she found the dead body immediately. And uh, she knew it was this man. So you have two witnesses signed on a document. The document is partially certified However, those two witnesses seem to be signed what they heard from this woman who knew the man intimately. She was a, a, um, a uh, sister-in-law and she testifies she found the body eight days later, which is a problem. You have one woman who testifies she found the body early and recognized him. And you have enough to be mata here. Number one, the first woman claims she found him within three days, right away, right after the pogrom. She knows for sure that was the man who was missing. Number two, the sister-in-law, and this, of course, we're trying to understand what she said, but when she says she recognized him, maybe she meant, not by the visage, she was a sister-in-law, she knew what the man looked like, through a simen mufak. Now, what does a simen mufak mean? You see, Yassimim Mufak is not simple. If you say he had uh, black hair, that's not a Simon Mufak. What about if he was totally bald? What about if he had a wart on the side of his head? What about if uh, three teeth were missing on the left side? What about if he had a gold tooth here and a gold tooth there? And the corpse you found meets this description. That already is a Simon Mufak. Follow what I'm saying? In my case, i give you a simple example. Looking at me, you can't tell there's any difference between these two hands. Right? My hands look normal to you. Uh, what the old time is known, it's already going back many, many years. One day on a beautiful, clear December day, sun is shining, walking back from Michlala to my car, parked at the Mahon Life parking lot after finishing teaching. There were steps built into the mountain. It, these steps are gone already because there was no way to connect from here to Korev to Michalah. It was very primitive. Those steps, the boys named Ma'alot Rakefet because I was the only one who used them regularly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. On the Ma'alot Rakefet, I went flying uh, like a dead man. No control. It was like the other day when Rabbi Chrisworth started punching me and slugging me. I was, I was a goner. Had no way to, no way. I knew I was finished. Flying in the air. No way to defend myself. And I suffered serious damage, thank God. Uh, all that remains is I can't totally fold one finger. But uh, two breaks in the wrist, two broken fingers, a lot of damage. I was in whatever it was. To look at me, you can't tell the difference. But if this hand would be x-rayed, if you look carefully, you'll see that one hand is maybe a, a, a part of a centimeter larger than the other hand. And the bones would show that they were broken and healed. That would be a simon mufak. You understand? If the is found intact, then they can x-ray. You don't need DNA. You, all you do, you x-ray. Take a look at the bones. That would be a simon mufak. So that's what 
she evidently meant. If she meant it, then three days is not a factor, and even at the end of three days, you can be matter 100%, and the Samachsarek is matter. However, it's off the Chiva, and this is in any case where there's doubt like this, and we've spoken about this many times, Shalomilani libilatir imlobahaskamat. That means he doesn't want to take it on himself. It's not Gentafshani, pardon me for using the Gentafshani example. But Yantav Shani, I don't have to get a 50 different people to agree with me. You saw I was speaking with Rabbi Lichtenstein before. Believe me, I wasn't talking with him about Yantav Shani. Yantav Shani, each one can pass on what they want. It's not not the end of the world. It's Yantav Shani. It's not the Aguna. Aguna Mamzerit, you're frightened stiff. So here, when you pass in, you have a right to say, I want two more to agree with me, at least one more to agree with me, generally two more to agree. And only then does it become operational. Now, here's another chiva, a very fascinating one. Now, we quoted part of this chiva many, many months ago in a different context for a different reason. But now I want to quote the heart of the, of the case. And I'm dealing with the Chacham Tzvi Siman <coughs> Kufla Medalet. <coughs> now, the Chacham Tzvi Vetzvi Hirsh Ashkenazi. All of you know, Echad Migedol Gedol Yisrael is the father of Yaakov Emden, a very fascinating father and son, very independent, if you know what those words mean. They were idiosyncratic poskim, and I use that in the finest sense. They poskim what they want, they didn't look at the world, they dealt with halacha. That's why we don't follow them all the time. If we would have followed them all the time, we would be eating uh, beans and legumes on Pesach, and a lot of the problems in Eretz Israel would be solved. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, the Chachams, we cried that we had come at some Pesach because of a Chumrah that has no source whatsoever. No, Shlomo, you know what he means by that? I just said something you're probably wondering. What's he talking about? He's absolutely right. Did you ever see the way hand matzah is baked? Go sign to a hand matzah factory. See the way it's baked. You will never touch hand matzah again in your life. In, in, in the time of hand matzahs, if the more you bake, the more chance for chametz. It's human beings putting it and taking out the matzahs. Blah, he forgot this matzah. The guy's wife called him. His daughter came crying. You don't understand. It's humans. Whenever you're depending upon humans, I have gotten two Subaru cars, brand new, in my life. Each one had a fault. My last two cars, Japanese, the pride of Japanese production. Subaru, biggest import at the time in Israel. The first one, the lights didn't work. Some Japanese guy, his wife yelled at him, he cursed them out, he forgot the... The other one I got, the new one, the air conditioning didn't work. And, I, and, and in, America, in Israel, they have no sense. You bring up, oh yeah, a hundred cars went through, it seems the factory didn't notice the robot were, forgot this part, his, his, his computerization went off at that point. You understand what I'm saying to you? So, uh, this is Japan, humans, mortals, robots, only as good as the computer, and the computer is only as good as the person who programs it. Shem Yerachem Aleinu. So, uh, when you had to bake more matzah because a person couldn't eat beans and, and, and rice, the more chance of chametz. Nowadays, gentlemen, with machine matzahs, believe me, not eating legumes does not make you eat chametz. Machine matzahs, it is a pleasure. Nothing can go wrong, basically. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, unless the machines break down, so then you don't have matzah. But it's a pleasure. It is a, a, it is a revelation 
to see what they've developed with machine matzahs and how fast they work and how accurate and the pace they put on, the role is that nothing can get stuck and everything falls off. Oh, it's a pleasure. And this is why the Rav, Moriu Rebbe, the Rav, was mocked to use machine matzahs, Lel HaSeder, not hand matzahs. The whole world, you know, goes for hand matzahs. It's a chumrah. Sons-in-law, all they do is buy hand matzahs and hand matzahs. And the Rav was mocked to use machine matzahs. But when I'm a guest at my sons-in-law for the Seder, I have to, when in Rome, I have to put up with the hand matzahs like the rest of Kal Yisrael. But on my own, believe me, I only stick to hand matzahs, machine matzahs. So that's what he meant. That's what the Chacham Sri meant. But there are many other. I mean, the Chacham Sri, Rabbi Yaakov, I mean, they, they were in favor of Pilak Shim, everything, everything from Brooklyn. When they came out with the idea, man can have two, one wife, a Pilakish, concubines, the sky's the limit. Everything went back to, to the Chacham Tzvi and Rabbi Yaakov Emden. So they were idiosyncratic, to say the least. But they were great poskim. And uh, for your information, those of you from Borough Park, the great Rabbi Moshe Bik, who was the postsake of Borough Park, Basofia Mav, and was at my, when I was growing up, he was the postsake of the Bronx, uh, Rabbi Moshe Bik, who was a Chavir, Rabbi Yosef Weiss, so a little older than Rabbi Yosef Weiss, taught at YU, was one of Rabbi Moshe Salavechik's great Talmidim, and should have been, gone on to become a YU Rosh Yeshiva. But he told me he felt he was unwanted at YU because he was a Hasidish, uh, you know, individual. And in those days, YU wasn't big enough, open-minded enough. Today, a Rosh Yeshiva in YU could be a Hasidish, Hasidish individual. I don't think that'd be a problem. But I don't know. I don't know. I never heard the other side of the story. I never heard that much big side of the story. Why he started teaching in YU but never continued, and he became a very famous post-second Rebbe in the Bronx in Brooklyn. Rabbi Moshe Bik was a direct descendant of, of Rabbi Yaakov Enden, the Chacham Tzvi, and he davened, the city he davened, I remember, as like yesterday, was the Rabbi Yaakov Enden, the the Beis Yaakov, printed by his great, 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 it was Mamish, uh, 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 from the original printing, because Rabbi Yaakov Enden made a living, he was a printer, among other things, he wouldn't be in the rabbinate, and he made a living from uh, jewelry, other, other, he had many, many, he was a businessman, but he was a publisher, and, and he had, the Siddha published first edition by his great-great-great-great-grandfather. Anyway, uh, it's a very interesting question, and you'll see again, life comes before your eyes. Chacham Tzvi Kuflamid Dalid, person um, went out to the forest. What does it mean he went out to the forest? He was traveling. And evidently, in order to get on to the next village, probably for business reasons, he had to go through a forest. At that time, the French were fighting the Germans. Now, I don't have to tell you, those of you who know Alsace-Lorraine and know how many times that border has changed hands, the French and Germans fighting, what else is new? Meissen Bechol Shana, the French fighting the Germans. While they're fighting, they were taking spoils, capturing people, and they went to look for him. After eight days of searching, they found a dead man tied to a tree, executed by bullets. Could you imagine? They didn't even bury the body. And they recognized his clothes. In other words, it's after eight days of searching, which means it's long after three days beyond his death. They find a sign in his forehead, a siman, what does it mean, a wart, a boil, whatever it was. They buried him. And 
one aide said testimony from those who found the body that this is the man who was missing. They recognize him. Now, so far, it's all a new case. We spoke about this a number of months ago in relation to something else. The woman first came to ask for a hetta 13 years after this happened. 13 years. So uh, that's a problem. Why did she wait so long? It's very suspicious. She had that testimony right away. Why did she wait so long? And on that level, Rabbi Yaakov Vendum says, you better check it out thoroughly. Rabbi Chacham Tzvi says, pardon me, you better check it out thoroughly why she waited so long. Shmik nishkut. It doesn't make sense. But you have to be sure there was no chicanery. If you're sure there's no chicanery, then you can go ahead and deal with it halachically. Now I can tell you in parentheses, why did she wait so long? If there wasn't chicanery, it's probably a psychological situation. I've seen in life many times that people are convinced they're not going to remarry. Convinced. No need. Whatever the reasons are. Their first marriage was a fantastic experience. They'll never equal the first marriage. was a horrible experience. Who the hell needs a partner again? Seen it in life many times. And sometimes they don't tie the loose ends together. For the sake of argument, a woman uh, got a get from her husband. She never, never went back to get the ketav to her. I've seen this already. You know what I'm talking about? No woman keeps the get right? This goes back to the time of Rishonim, Rabbeinu Tam, the, the Gedolei Ashkenaz. I explained it many times, but if you don't know, I'll explain it in a minute flat. The woman would keep the get. couple gets divorced. Sometimes they hate each other. The enmity is very great, like we see today. So he sneaks into our house, takes the get, and he rips out a letter. A week later, he announces to the public, the get I gave my wife is invalid, a letter is missing, the get is pasul, not written properly. They asked him, show us the get. He's right. In order to avoid what we call hotzat laz al get, the Rishonim already made a takana. The woman does not keep the get right after the get is given to the woman. She gives it back to the Baitan. And the Baitan later drums up a formal tudat gerushin or tudat patur that on this and this day in front of us the woman got the get. That's what she keeps and that's all she needs. No bait in the world will ever see the original get again. It's gone, forgotten. In Israel they keep it in file. I don't know how long they keep it. They keep it on file. I don't know if it's indefinitely or not, but they keep it on file. I have a get administered in Israel. How did I get it? I had a, do- a girl... Uh, this goes back to the early 70s in Michalad, the Israeli classes. I had a wonderful girl, Devorah Chazan. It turned out her father, he's not alive, and he's a great Talmud Chacham, was, was an Av Beitan in Haifa. So I told her, I'd like to see an Israeli get. I want to compare it to an American get. She brought me a get. She said, I don't need it back. My father took it out of the files. You understand? And it was very interesting. I have it at home until today. It's a very fascinating because on that get, you see how they used that get as an outline for the next get they were going to write. Where they changed the names, the city, but everything else, you can see the sofa copied it. So that Ketav Gerushin, if that's what they called it in Israel, I think it's called the Tudat Gerushin, you have to come back to get. There are women, they don't want it, they don't need it, what do I need it for? I'm not going to remarry, I suffered with them for 13 years, what do I need another boss for? What do I need another, another man bossing me around? Uh, what, what, what's the, the, that theme song in, uh, in First Wives Club? Nobody owns me, you understand? Nobody owns me. 
the women are commanding nobody. Suddenly, 15 years later, she meets a Talmud of Aaron Rakefid, who heard his lectures on working out a happy marriage. It's a different panache, a different human being. Different human being. And she says, oh, a man like this I have to marry. Hey, 13 years later, where's my congregations? I have to tell you that it's not ipso facto absul that she's first working up 13 years later. What we have to be sure is that there's no chicanery involved. Now, he, so that's number one. Number two, uh, the whole question of uh, this, the identity. It's after three days. After three days. Well, they found the what? Found something on his forehead. Certainly it's more than a a bad identity, but I wouldn't say it's it's like a broken bone. It's not like uh, 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 four fingers instead of five fingers. It's not like someone who's totally bald that you recognize right away. This is the man putting together with the fact that a man like that is missing and you found a corpse like that. So, perhaps that's not enough. However, what about the clothes? You recognize the clothes. Uh, maybe he lent the clothes to somebody else. It also happens. I once had in BMT, in, uh, it has to be in the 1980s already, where they were running students past me like a uh, fast action movie. So suddenly I get new students and I'm trying to learn their names. It's now January, new classes. And I see a kid on his yarmulke, absolute true story, I don't remember the name, but let's say on the yarmulke it says Yosef. Yosef. So I say to the kid, Yosef. Sorry, Rabbi, it's not my name. What do you mean it's not your name? Yarmulke. No, I borrowed the yarmulke from the third guy in my room. I couldn't find him. Borrowed the yarmulke. My name is Chaim. First of all, I would arrest him for desecration of airspace. If your name is Chaim, how do you wear a yarmulke saying Yosef? You understand? Number two, I'd arrest him for misleading a Rebbe. I made an I, you may, I made an honest error. But you see, there is a concept of lending clothes, borrowing clothes. It's like I'm going to America tomorrow, so uh, we hear the reports in America, all oh, my neighbors are on the website, everyone is giving me information, it's freezing, it's 12 degrees, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're going to bury you when you get off the plane, it's, it's, it's ice, it's this, it could be, I know Chicago, it's Taka Lichtenberg, Chicago, the airports are closed, New York, I hope, I hope, I hope. But all right, I'm, and I'm going to Florida afterwards. How much can you travel with? I told my wife, if worse comes to worse, I'll borrow a sweater. I have a sweater. I'm taking a sweater. I'm not going to take two, three, four sweater. What can I do? I have a borrow a sweater. Okay, we borrow. Oh, but when a person went into a forest, now according to the Chiffa, and people are frightened stiff. Anyone with a brain ain't going to go into a forest at a time that the French and German are shooting apples off other people's heads. You understand? It's not William Tell Overture here. So if you find that this man was missing with the wart, with his clothes, and you find the corpse tied to a tree, this already is enough to be Matthew. And he says, if you can only establish why she waited so long, you have enough information to be Matir. Very fascinating, very interesting shiva. Okay, now I come to one of my favorite shiva, and it's very fascinating because here we get involved 
in a very deep psychological problem. And I'll introduce the problem. All my life, I've been privileged to know Gadoli Israel. And I noticed that uh, some of them have fabulous senses of humor. Mamish. They're, they're fabulous. The Rav had a sense of humor. Wow. I told you in my work on my book, if I'll, uh, the, the work on the Rav, I uh, time and again put into parentheses left. And I explained in the introduction because we're living in a generation where people take every word serious and they didn't realize he was telling a joke. And the left, there was the audience responding. The Labavitcher Rebbe, no, it was amazing. I, the Rebbe could crack. I was once there when he said the following. He said, Minzat in the Haggadah, he was dealing with women, it was a women's issue, women lighting candles. Minzat in the Haggadah, Kalama Baharezim Mishubach, Abachaintrim in Kukdunda Kutsa Kleidalach, Ich Tracht as the Freyan Tracht in Kalamakatse Harezim Mishubach. Do you follow me? He's talking about clothing styles. In the early 70s, women started dressing naked. I remember it was a shocking thing because when I came in Aliyah from America, people still dressed. Remember the early times I look up, I see a rabbi's daughter at the Kotel. She looks like she's in a bathing suit. So they told me that's the new style. The, and, and at that time, American Orthodoxy and modern Orthodoxy, even today, were greatly influenced by the styles outside of Borough Park, uh, unfortunately. So what the Lubavitch Rebbe was commenting in the Haggadah, it says, Kol HaMaber HaRezim HaShubach. We spoke about it last week. Remember, Kol HaMaber HaSapi HaSit Mitzrayim HaRezim HaShubach. The more you tell, the, the, the more you're praiseworthy. And uh, here the women say, the shorter the dress is, the more you're praiseworthy. It's a good joke. I saw 8,000 Hasidim who understood the Rebbe. That's a different story. Some of them have the earphones. They have to hear it in English until they get the joke. The Rebbe's already five minutes past them. But, uh, but those that heard, I could see they were biting their lips. Biting their lips. So I asked one lady, why didn't you laugh? He says, no, it's not a cover from Rebbe. It's not a cover. So why did he tell a joke? If the Rebbe didn't want you to laugh, he shouldn't have told the joke. If he told the joke, you have a right to laugh. But you see, now this raises a very interesting question. And over the years, I don't exactly say that I have been without a sense of humor, to say the least. You know what I found over the years? People that tell jokes are the most serious people alive. They develop a sense of humor. It's a safety valve. And I can be made on myself. I don't want to talk about anyone else. My commitment to Torah destroys me. It's total. I have no other commitment in life. See, people make a mistake. They think, why you people uh, live in the Western world? Uh, yes, I live in the Western world. That's a, it happens to be an accident of birth. If I was born uh, 300 years ago, I wouldn't be living in the Western world. Now I live in the Western world. It's true. And I can enjoy guys and dolls. I just saw it again. It took me eight nights or something, but I saw I see it once a year. It's my favorite all-time American movie, my favorite all-time Israeli movie. Jack even has a copy of it for me, is Azulai HaShoter. And if you look in Guys and Dolls, look at and look at Azulai HaShoter, you'll understand our Kefet. But wait, they, they, I look at Guys and Dolls, but you know, my whole commitment, my whole mahut, my whole inner being is Torah. There's nothing else. Well, if you look around you and see what you go through to teach Torah, even in the YU world, the struggle with Torah, the forces at work, leave the, not even mentioning the Israeli world, it destroys you. So I have a safety valve. You know what my safety valve is? I laugh, 
I tell a joke. I laugh at myself. It's good. It's healthy. The Gemara speaks. Remember the Gemara? That they didn't begin a shir, the Gemara in Shabbos, without telling a joke or two. Well, you see, Chazal didn't put down the need for the Mulei Debedichata. The Gemara in it with the Batchanim that are the greatest Sadikim alive because with their jokes, they enabled husband and wives to make friends. Laugh at yourself. And I have a lot of Torah that I'll say on this topic next term in Midrashim in the context of how to work out a happy marriage. So you see, a person who tells jokes, it doesn't mean he's not a serious person. Lahefech. And I can tell you, I know someone in Woodmere. This fella, if anyone here from Woodmere, if, you, if anyone here from Woodmere, I'll right away who I'm talking about. He's a bundle of laughs. You can't dive any Shabbos morning in Woodmere without hearing a good joke, a good laugh, a good comment from this individual. Whenever I see him, he's smiling, he's laughing. I got to tell you, his personal life, so sad. He get never married finally got married late, married an Israeli woman, the most happy marriage you can imagine, adored her, loved her. No, she died. He remarried now, thank God, happily. But his life, he's gone through so much. But what a sense of humor, that keeps him going. Now this chiva raises the very problem I'm talking about. You'll see why. It's by Rabbi Shlomo Kluga. Now, a few words about Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, some of you may know on the east side of New York, I don't know uh, I don't know today if it still exists, there was a Rabbi Solomon Kluger day school. Rabbi Shlomo Kluger was a Galiziana. That's the part of Hungary that was Hungary, Poland. You never knew where it belonged. And the Galicianas until today, it's, it's, it's a world unto itself, the way they spoke. It's, it was a, they're Hebrew, they're Hebrew, every, all of us spoke a different Hebrew. Litvak spoke one Hebrew, Galician, and not, Palish a Jew, a different Hebrew. It's an amazing world. I, I heard someone laying in my shul, a rabbi born in America, raised in America in his seventies, Rabbi Arnold Teisler. He lays at the six o'clock minion all Rifka. Heard him laying for the first time a few weeks ago. I said, Arnold, you are a Galiciana. He said, how did you know? I said, this hearing one line of your laning, and it takes me back to my youth when I heard Galatiana's laning. So if Shlomo Kluger was a giant of giants in that area. He lived in the first part of the 19th century. He was revered, revered. Wrote endless svarim. Posek Muvak. Um, now, I'm quoting from Ha'elef Lecha Shlomo. That's the name. Ha'elef Lecha Shlomo. It's Shelaton Shivar and Evan I'm quoting Siman Sadi. Siman Sadi. And he has the following story. There's a woman, Etel Rachel, that they got a witness, uh, one witness, who testified that he was in this hospital, and in the hospital, the man named Chaim Steller, who was her husband, died. Seven years this woman wandered back and forth to see whether she could find the heta, to see whether she could get more information. And time and again, the man testified, this is the person, this is his name, this was his father, this man died. One individual. 
This individual was a joker. A joker. A Letz. He was called Shmuel Letz. That was his nickname. Some people always have a joke. To give him a nickname. His nickname. Shmuel Letz. A lights on. A Letz. I would just say it in English. A comic. A joker. That was his nickname. And the question came up. Can you believe him? Eirachad. Strong testimony. The name, the father. This was the missing man. Time and again, the man does not show. Said what I say, seven years have gone by. It's a long time. And the man does not show. And you have this one individual giving us clear testimony. But we're worried stiff. Can we believe him? He's a joker. Can we take this testimony? Can we permit him? The fact that a man is a joker is not absolute. He quotes the Gemara, quoted from Tainit. Famous Gemara. So if, are you familiar with the Gemara? I'll, I'll tell you the Gemara in a second. I believe it's Tafchaf Pet. I just want to see if he gives a page here. Give me one second. No, he doesn't give the page. See, in his time, Bishas Mesechatainit, Gabliyahu, Bahani Treyinshe, Badchayanan. It's famous Gemara. I believe it's Tafchaf Pet If you can check it out in time, I don't have it in front of me. But in, see, in his time, it's the early part of the 19th century, Avi. You didn't have to quote an exact Dhammad, an exact Daf. Everyone knew. But it's an amazing Gemara. The Gemara talks about that, uh, that uh, an Amora was standing here, uh, Rabbeinu Brokia was standing in the marketplace, and he had Gilu Yaliyahu. And as people walked by, Eliyahu Navi would tell him, those people are going to rot in hell, those people are going to go to heaven. So he sees people walking by, long beards, payers, black hats, they're going to go to heaven. He has no problem with it. He sees people walking by looking like Rakefet. They're going to rot in hell. He has no problem with it. Then he sees a guy walking by, a bum, earrings, long hair. And El Navi tells him, these two guys are going to get the highest place in Ganadin. And Rabbi Rabbeinu Broke goes berserk. Why? Why? he got to find out. He runs over to him. Tell me. He says, can't talk to you now. We're busy. They're running. An hour later, they come walking back slowly. He says, can I talk with you now? They say yes. And uh, they say... People have a fight. When we see a husband and wife have a fight, we tell them jokes. We make them laugh. Until they laugh at each other and make up. And that, that's what the Gemara thinks of jokers. And by the way, the, the Shari Chiva, if you, if it's brought, you know, the, where, where he has the seven days, for each day of the week, you say Rabbeinu Yonah, where you say during a search of the days of Chol, it's a minute, the days of Chol, because a search of always has two, two days of, Shur, of Rosh Hashanah, and uh, you have Yom Kippur, but the seven days in between, the six days of Chol and Shabbat, he has for what you to say each day of the week. I believe this is on Monday's day. He says a community has to be strong enough to not only have Rabbanim and Malamdim, but to have jokers, professional jokers. 
what I would call marriage counselors in modern language. And this is part of being a marriage counselor. It's part of having insight, part of being a rebbe today. When people take themselves too seriously, no marriage can work out because it's a clash of two worlds. It's like politicians. You see the jokers around here? Meridor, Rani Malo, Shachak, Lipkin Shachak. These people take themselves so seriously. David Levy, it's frightening. Who are they? Schmutz, nothing. Ice fobs, bums. What do they know? What have they accomplished in life? Few of them were generals. I would keep all generals out of politics. I'd make a rule. No general of the Israeli army can get into politics. There are reasons why I can't elaborate now. It's not for them. But who are they? Take themselves so seriously. There are 101 parties today. The only party I'm voting for is Lieberman. Baruch Hashem. I love what he said today. I didn't go to a gymnasium in, in, in Yerushalayim. I'm not part of the crowd. I'm a newcomer. But we newcomers are the majority of the country today. And who did he put in the newcomers camp? The Haredim. The Chabadnikim. I loved it. The Russians. Beautiful. These guys, they take themselves so seriously. They need a few jokers. Bring them down to earth. Wash their faces in mud. What are they? Who are they? They lie through their teeth. They accomplish nothing. Find a shalom. Daven and learn a little Torah. And pull out of politics altogether. Men are not allowed to be in politics. It's Beetle Torah. Politics is entirely for women. Women have to run the country. Like they run the houses. They have to run the country. Take over. Then we'll have a country. When Golda Meir ran the country, there were no problems here. In tow. Believe me. But you see, being a joker is not absurd. I love this trivia. And he paskins la this woman needed chlitza, but once she gets chlitza, he muterek belifik fuk, ratchets richa chlitza, vim tachlots, muterek lehina say, vizeh habaitin shayachlachotzla, that the shay, that will take care of the chlitza, yatirala, there will be matachat to remarry. And he says, the fact that he was a letz is not absol. And that's a very, very fascinating shiva from no less a person than the Shlomo Kluga. When I was growing up, it's one of the names we heard about rather than the names we revered, Rab Shlomo Kluga. He fought the Haskalah. There's a lot to talk about here. Okay, again, Rab Shlomo Kluga. Ha'elef l'cha Shlomo. It's based upon a Pasuk, of course. And it's Siman Tzaditet. Siman Tzaditet. And here's a very interesting story. The Jews already are emancipated. This already has to be into the 1870s, I would say, 1870s. Jews were emancipated. Part of emancipation, Jews are in the various armies. And here you have a Jew, and he's in the army. Interesting what he does in the army. He's a musician. Fascinating. Jews in modern world... We're in music. Look at some of the greatest conductors. Look at the history of music in Russia. You'll find Jews very prominently right down the line. Take the United States, Broadway shows, musicals. Jews practically have a monopoly on the great songs that were written in the 20th century. Do I have to say more than that little East European kid, Urban Berlin? I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Go and dream who wrote it. And what Irvin Berlin's father and who his grandparents were, what they were like. But that's America. But it's interesting. Jews have a kisharon for music. 
very fascinating. If I wanted to be a Kalbacha, I would say it goes back to the Levium, goes back to the Beis Amikdash. Shlomo has an entire theory that we taught the Spanish how to sing. Could be. I don't know. Don't want to deny it. We Jews have a Kisharon for music. And here you have a description. This woman was in Aguna. Her husband was in the army. And she got a letter from the Balei Mulchama, Yisrael. Very interesting Hebrew. It's not modern Hebrew. What is Balei Mulchama? We didn't have a name for it at that time. Chayalim. Today, Chayalim. Chayalim Yehudim. Jewish soldiers in his unit that he drowned in the water. They pulled him out of the water they rolled them up and down, meaning probably their form of artificial respiration, try to bring them back to life, and they never succeeded. And they buried him in the military cemetery. Ten soldiers. And three Jews certified their signatures. However, the certification is rubbed out. You can only see it partially. It's like a fax that didn't come through clearly. You understand? I've dealt with the fax machine so much already that whenever I write a fax, I write it in, in heavy uh, black ink if I possibly can. If not, I ma- write it with a marker because on the other side of the ocean, if there's any f- problem in transmission, the blacker, the darker, the heavier it is, it's more likely to come out as good as possible, or at least to be legible. So that was a problem here. You can't read the signatures, not of the soldiers who signed, not of the but you have ten soldiers testifying. And he passed that you can absolutely depend upon this testimony. Even if you feel, and we spoke about this in the Rambam and, and the Mishnah Malik a few weeks ago, that Ektaviyad of Jews needs Kiyom Beitin, but here you know there was a Kiyom, and you have ten signatures, and you want to be Matadi Aguna, and even if you can't read all the signatures, but you know what the contents is, and this is sufficient. And the woman certainly can depend upon them. If two Adam would come along, you certainly would depend upon two Adam. Allah had come of come and you have ten signatures and you know that there was a kiyam and even if you can't read the exact signatures of the Baitan, but the cloud is once you know a Baitan was Makayim the signatures, this is sufficient. You don't need a kiyam, you don't have to now be Makayim who the signatures were of the Baitan. See, ain't led of self otherwise. Could you imagine if you required a kiyam on the signatures and the Baitan signs, and then you gotta know who the Baitan is, ain't led of self. Now, there's something else very interestingly. Very interesting. How do you know it's the man? Dug him out of the water. Wearing the clothes. Perhaps he lent the clothes to somebody else. Maybe it's not him. Maybe someone borrowed the clothes. The whole question we spoke about before. But here Rabbi Shlomo Kluger shows keen army insight. A soldier is not allowed to lend his clothes out to anyone else. This is your uniform. You're responsible for it. It's your personal property. 
And that goes on until today in every army. And by the way, this is the downfall of the Israeli army. If you want to know where our problems begin in the Israeli army, no, who knows what it means, Lahashlim Tziyud. No, who served? Who did basic training? The minute basic training is over, you have to return everything you have, everything you signed for. So every unit robs off the new unit, so they give back what they got, whether it's theirs or not. That's Lahashlim Tziyud. And that's accepted in the army, chicanery, thievery. This is where has the boys are different. They don't rob, they don't steal. They're on a different level altogether. It's a tremendous problem. And this is an army tradition. Lashlim Tziyud, it's accepted. It's like hazing the younger class. You understand? You come in, you're a freshman, the sophomores beat the hell out of you. This goes on in yeshiva high schools too. Why do the sophomores beat the hell out of you? Got to see if you're a man. They haze you. This is part of the tradition. I'll never forget when we finished basic training, our commanders told us if you're lacking anything, just pick it off. Let the others worry when they have to be. And each one robs of the new group coming in and it has a formal name. Well, if you're mashlim with lashlim tziyud, we have the start of a terrible ethnical and moral problem that begins right at the end of basic training. But he says so beautifully that people in the army don't rent our clothes. Allah had come and become when you're in the music corps. You have a special uniform. These guys, they're not fighting soldiers. They have beautiful, what I call it, uh, m- 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 what's the word that there's? Madim, I think there's a special term. There's, we, there's uh, fancy clothes and there's regular workday clothes. These guys are in fancy clothes in the army. They can't lend it out to others. They're the music corps. And therefore he says, the whole concept of Chayish L'Sheila, maybe he lent it, maybe it's not him, maybe somebody borrowed it from him, all this does not apply. In the army, they find the soldier, his clothes is on, this is his clothes. Now, that's another example, beautiful example. Now I'll show you another example, modern times, very moving. And this is taken from the Israeli press. Hatzofer, August 1973. Hatzofer, every Torah Jew has his own. It's one of our tragedies because no one reads them anywhere. Everyone reads Haaretz, Marev, or Yedid Achranot. The hatred for religion in these three papers is indescribable. Marav the least, the Falbach left the will that they should never be anti-religious. The will is observed as much as a dead fish dances around the Kazatska on Friday night. But nevertheless, they're the least anti. Yudiyat, they make a living out of poking fun at religion, but their enmity and hatred comes nowhere near Haaretz, which is the most sophisticated Israeli newspaper, which at times has op-ed pieces that make Goebbels' propaganda look good by comparison. And I'm quoting my Rebbe right now, but I know instances that he didn't know in the 70s subsequently that are just unbelievable. For instance, when Sharansky comes out of the Gulag, uh, Yair Kutler, writing in Haaretz writes, he was better off in the Russian Gulag than to be given into the hands of the Mekas Arab fanatics of of Avital Sharansky, quote, end quote. God have mercy on us. 
a girl once called me on the phone. You know, they call on the phone. If you want to buy, uh, subscribe. Now I have a standard answer. Anything you want me to buy, send me the information. Let me look about it. Goodbye. But he called about hours. I said to the girl, what, do you want to kill me? What, you don't value my life? You don't even know me? And she got so apologetic. I, I, she must be a from girl. She wanted to make a few pennies. What can I told her? I love Haaretz. It's like the New York Times. But when I read their attitude towards Eretz Yisrael and towards religion, everything that I believe in, I won't survive another day. Please, even if you give it me for nothing, I'm not interested. So there we have all the little religious papers. Hatzofer, Hamodia, Yateid Neman, Yom Liom. Take them all. No one reads them. Halabai, they would all join together and come out with one major paper daily to rival the New York Times. And we could do it. With a positive attitude towards Torah. But we Torah Jews, unity won't exist. That be it Mashiach. So this is Hatzofer. Now I always say about Hatzofer, it's very wisely named. Hatzofer is a synonym. For, this is an Aaron Kefet witticism. It's a synonym for a prophet. Hatzofer doesn't give you the news as it is. It's the news as you would like it to be. Hatzofer lebeit Yisrael. It's a lot better today, by the way. It's a very, it's, of all the papers of the religious world, it is a sophisticated newspaper. Uh, unbelievable story that appears there in 1973. A woman in Jerusalem that was in a guna 29 years got a hitatory due to the great insight of a rabbi in Carmiel. What's the story? The woman's name, Bela Boer, married her husband, Feibish, 1940, she only lived with him a short time. The war broke out. She was pregnant. The husband joined the Russian army. She never, ever heard from him again. After World War II, she reached Israel with her little daughter. The girl grew up, and many women are very devoted no thought of remarrying. Now the daughter grew up. The daughter is a young lady. And the woman met a man. And lo and behold, they decided to get married. However, she comes to the rabbinate. And she has no proof that her husband was killed during the war. The rabbinate did find the heter. Accidentally. Accidentally, a friend of her husband named Baruch Reitzen comes into her life and... No, no. Accidentally, she finds out that a friend of her husband named Baruch Reitzen who was in the Russian army with him came in Aliyah and lives in Kamiel. Now, if you know Kamiel, Kamiel is a city of immigrants, mainly Russians, and this is 1973. Remember, there was a tremendous opening of the gates in 71, 72, 73. A tremendous aliyah came. The old times, I believe, uh, Lieberman came at this time or shortly thereafter. The rabbinate in Jerusalem turned to the rabbi of Kamiel, Rabbi Edelberg, tried to find this man, Baruch Reitzman. The man looked all over the Jewish agency, the immigration department, the Russian department. No Baruch Reitzen in Kamiel. Rabbi Eidelberg didn't give up and he went to the Misrach Pnim, 
And there he found out that yes, there is a Baruch Reitzen who came in Aliyah. He does live in Carmel. But what did he do? Like all other good Jews, he changed his name. And his name today is Dov Reese. The rabbi went back to Kamiel, lifted up a phone to Dov Reese. He knew and said, of course, I was in the army with this man. He says, he was killed in battle. And I'm one of those who buried him in a field cemetery. It means in a military cemetery near the front. And he testified, killed in battle. And I'm one of those who buried him. With this testimony, the Beit in Yerushalayim was able to be Matthew the woman and very shortly she is remarrying to the choice of her heart. So here you have a magnificent story with a Rav who shows Tushia. Now let me just make one comment on this and I don't want to go any further because it would take hours. My daughter uh, introduced me to this world. The Basin of Yerushalayim has a Rav, he's of Russian origins, a Chevreman par excellence, speaks a genius, speaks Russian, English, French. He's employed full-time by the Beitin. And his job, to track down husbands who are missing. To give Gittin or to find out whether they're alive or dead. This man has succeeded in helping tens of women find Heterim to remarry. He's fabulous. But we, Torah Jews, have one problem. The Rabnid has no Seichel. My daughter said this once and twice and thrice. The Rabnid Ushulayim should hire someone, a full-time press agent. I even suggested who there's a Tommy Dav mine, who's a press agent. From Chicago originally. She would be fabulous for this. Tell the papers. Give releases. Come across. Why must we always have the papers portraying us haters of modernity, enemies of women, insensitive to human suffering? Nothing is further than the truth. But you need a publicity agent. Understand? Someone here on the call asked me, you're going to America, a fellow last week, why aren't I, why aren't, why aren't you giving a shit in YU? No one in YU and the other no even knows my name, knows I exist. And that's why I'm happy, that's me. You know what I'm but if I would have a public relations man, believe me, I go to America, give a shit, Baruch Hashem, you guys have to put up, they all come here, everyone gives a shit. Yes, it's unbelievable. You guys are going to get credit for listening to guest lectures. course, 4.02 in the Kolel. If you attend 10 guest lectures during the year, another supplementary rabbinic credit. But you need a publicity agent. All right, I have a different problem. I don't want publicity. It's a different story. But the rabbinate, look at this beautiful story. Hatzofah, Halavayit appeared in Marav, Yediyat Achronat, they should choke on it in Haaretz. But this is the Rabbah. These are Gadol Israel. These are Rabbanim. These are Bar- But you have to have Seichel. You have to have insight. You have to be a Hefferman. See, some Rabbanim work by the book. If you work by the book, you're not going to be Matar Agunat. You understand? If I would have worked by the book, I would have never had the Sechut. I was Matar Agunat in Russia. It's an entire story. It's not for now. you got to be innovative. You have to seek. You have to search. 
Everyone can come up with something. God left for you. It's told about prayer. If finished, every little person can come along and with greatness of spirit, he can add something to it. It's a magnificent story. Change name. He found one of them up him. He found it. However, not always. See, with all that I've said, with the sweeping breath of how much we're able to be matir. Not always. Not always. And here's the opposite. Where... At least at the point that this triv is written, there is no heta. And here we come, of course, to my Rebbe in uh, Halacha, Rebbe Moshe Feinstein. Uh, again, I've told you many times, when the Ikrit Moshe first appeared in the mid-50s, it was literally a holiday, mamish a holiday in the United States. You have no idea, we were overjoyed. The fact that the Rebbe was a little upset, see, that's when I learned that the Rebbe and Rebbe Moshe may be cousins, but they can differ in halacha. So I remember we were dancing and we asked the Rav, Rabbi Rav Moshe appeared, and we saw he had already problems with certain shivat of Rav Moshe. The first volume was on Arachayim. He had problems. He was, uh, I remember he was very upset. Rav Moshe Asad using liquid soap on Shabbos. And the Rav was uh, very upset. I remember that particular shiva. He was ready to, to, to shoot Rav Moshe down. Of course, the Arachashulchan was matter a hundred years earlier, but uh, it was amazing that Rav Moshe was uh, was machmi on that issue. No lot, you know, with liquid soap. Of course, on that issue, no one listens to Rav Moshe. Everyone uses liquid soap on Shabbos. But I remember the Rav was very upset. That was one shiver in particular. I remember that we were all dancing around the Rav Moshe, and the Rav already uh, found the shiver he uh, he he differed with. But all right, that's Gedoli Israel, the Vahav Basufa, the constant ongoing machloket, which begins already with the first Mishnah. So here I'm calling from the Ikrit Moshe Chelik Gimel Simen Mem Zayin. Now, Chelik Gimel Evan Ezra, I have to make myself clear. See, calling Reb Moshe is a terrible problem uh, because Reb Moshe has Chalakim, 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 Aleph, Chalik, Bet, what are there, seven, eight volumes already? I have all the volumes. The last one is not that important. The last three actually don't equal the first five that Reb Moshe himself issued. From about six on, his grandchildren are helping him, and uh, it's not so simple, not so clear. I once found the chiva there that I could tell the boys, I said, I'm positive Reb Moshe, David Tendler, it's not Reb Moshe uh, Feinstein. And lo and behold, the boy wrote in a tape of Tendler speaking before the chiva was written, and it was word by word in the chiva afterwards. So I think my intuition was right. But to quote Reb Moshe, I'm quoting from what we generally call Chalik Hay. It appeared in 1973. And I'm quoting from Chalik Hay when he did Igrot Moshe for Igrot, when he did Evan Ha'esa for the third time he had Shuvah Ha'esa and including Shuvah Memzayim. And it's a sad, sad story. This woman has a husband who was sent to Siberia. After Siberia, he was sent into battle. Now, again, let me say something about the Russians. It's important. You should know this. I've said it many times. It's a vart from, from uh, Rav Mordechai Gifter of Tells. It's a fabulous vart 
I once spoke about this in length with Batsheva Chutnezich, who just died a few, a few weeks ago. I dedicated this year in her memory. And she, of course, was raised in Russia. And she explained to me, she said, you don't understand, said, you don't understand. You're just going to be Rabbi Rothkopf. I, was, I, I don't like when people call me Rabbi, but with my students, I can tell them it's either Aaron or Rebbe with, 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 with Mrs. Hutner, with Geverit Hutner, with, with Rebetzin Hutner. I didn't, uh, I can't play games, you understand. I'm a kid sitting in front of a giant. So I could never correct. They always refer to me, Rabbi and Rabbi and Rabbi. Who the heck am I that I deserve such august titles from such a great woman? So she would say to me, Rabbi Rothkopf, you can't understand this, she said. You've got to remember, I know from 1951, she made a Sheva Brachas for myself and my wife and when we got married so many years ago. And she said, you don't know what Russia was. No one had plumbing indoors. It was unheard of. No one had more than a room in which to sleep. That was your, your bedroom, your living room, your night room, your kitchen, your this, your that, your study. And she said, Russia became a world power. When I was growing up in America, the 50s were frightened stiff of Russia. We had debates all the time. One of the main topics for debates, red or dead, what do you choose? Sputnik. When that Sputnik went up, we shivered, we, we, we shook. America's finished. Of course, it was false. The whole thing was a phony baloney, but we didn't know it at the time. It was Potemkin's village. We didn't know it at the time. America shivered, trembled. She said, G.C. Clay, this is what Mordechai Gifna said. Mordechai Gifna asked about, why was Russia Zolcha? Came a world power, frightened America, frightened England, frightened France, frightened Canada. A country that didn't have indoor plumbing still doesn't in a good part of the country. What happened here? It was the only country, the only Eastern European country that did not kill Jews. Every other country, you look at the map, the Poles killed the Jews with the Germans. The Lithuanians killed the Jews with the Germans. The Latins, what, what, what's your exception, Jack? I'm talking East. Bulgaria, you're, yeah, Bulgaria, Takarite was a little country where they didn't kill Jews. It's true. Save Jews. But Russia didn't kill Jews. If you got to Russia, they sent you to Siberia. They had no place for you uh, near, near the fronts, near, near the war, near, 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 near the heart of Russia. Sent you to Siberia. But if you survived Siberia, you survived the war. There were Gedoli Gedoli Israel, the Chubina Rav. The he survived in, 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 in Siberia. Many others survived in Siberia. If you survived the weather, you survived the climate, if you didn't die from starvation, but the Russians did not kill you. The Russian people, the communist empire, did not kill Jews in that context. They killed Jews for different reasons. If you practiced your religion, they killed plenty of Khabatnikim were, were executed uh, by the Russian government. That's a different story. But they didn't kill Jews for being Jews. Practicing religion was forbidden in Russia. That's a, it's a different story. If you heard the radio today, they're going crazy because Fidel Castro gave a Devat Torah at Hanukkah lighting in, in Havana and he came to the Jewish city uh, and he spoke words that, that you would hear in this room from me. It's amazing how clever that man is. But religion, and that's why they're amazed because religion is forbidden. The man spoke about the greatness of Jewish tradition and Jewish learning. It's unbelievable. And now it turns out, Fidel Castro, Jew, it turns out he descends from Moranos, and uh, it's unbelievable. So Russia was Zaycha. And that's what, that's what Reb Mordechai said. It's a meritic fart. 
And Batsheva Hutnut explained it to me. I didn't understand this, but she explained she said, you don't understand what Russia was, you don't understand how I grew up. And she said, I lived in Moscow at, for a, for at the end. For a, before she, she lived in Moscow already was, was, was the capital city, Yevayim. You don't know what Moscow was like. Circa 1940. So here you have the story. The husband was sent to Siberia, and from there he was drafted into the army. And in 1943, she gets an official letter. There's a, again, there's a word here in the Chiva that is a Russian word. Rabbi Moshe understood it. The woman understood it. I don't understand it. From the Yamakamata, Yunkamata. It's a Russian word. In my book, I have one, I have maybe more, but one Russian word I can think of. Poldrabin. Remember I taught you that word? The, the junior rabbi. I put the word into the manuscript now. Poldrabin, the way the Chabad Rebbe used to make fun of the Rebbe when he was a little kid, that he used to call him the Poldrabin, the junior rabbi. Now, here's a Russian word. I don't understand it, but those of you who are Russians can tell me what the word means. But I know what the word means. It means from the official war department of Russia, she got a letter that he's missing in action. Avad Zichro. If he would be alive, he would be 75 years old today. On the letter, there is no mention that he died. None whatsoever. So, what do you do? And Rabbi Moshe says, we don't have a basis to be Matya. The government itself is admitting that he's missing. We don't know where he is. If the government would have written he died in battle, that's a different question. Once someone dies in government letter, that's a different question. And we pass, and you can't believe a government letter. The government is not going to lie. We spoke about this. We'll come back to it again. It's a very important concept. But here there's no testimony that he died in battle. The only testimony we have is he's missing. Avad Zichro. Okay. What does it mean, Avad Zichro? Maybe he's alive. Maybe he doesn't know where to write to his family. Rabbi Meishi says, if the world were two, there was such a people, no one knew where to find anybody else. All of you understand this? Go and dream that his wife is in America. Where in America? It's like some Israelis say to me, oh, you're going to America, you'll be in Farakaway. I have a cousin in Farakaway. Zayashin, without giving me a name, a street number, you know how many Jews live in the greater Farakaway area? It's like some, you're going to Yerushalayim? Oh, my second cousin lives in Yerushalayim. So what? So do another half million Jews live in Yerushalayim. Go and find them. Doesn't know how to write. And he writes, says, Even people who remained at home, later on they had to run away. You couldn't remain. The battle came near you. The front came near you. You had to run away. And maybe he forgot the address. Mirov Hatsarat Shavaralav. Who knows where he is today? Or maybe he was redeemed. He survived. And where he was, he married another woman. And he dafka doesn't want to meet his first wife. He gave up, forgot about her. Didn't do it sinfully. But uh, that's life. Many cases like that. That's our tragedy in America. No man has to give a get. What does he care? Big from guy, pious, why you guy, tells guy, slabatka guy, whatever you want. 
So he asked his second wife, what's the matter? Not so bad, it's only a cherem, the Rabbeinu Geshem, who renewed the cherem in America. 1950 was only renewed in Israel, it wasn't renewed in America. Aye, there's a law in America against bigamy, the same way he, he cheats a little bit on Texas, so he cheats a little bit on the bigamy law. Clinton can be president of the United States, and I just saw a poll that he's the most popular man, the greatest man in America. Greatest man in America. I forgot why I saw it, but I see the Time magazine, greatest man, or the, or the Jerusalem Post. They pick up all the in the world. Clinton is the greatest sexual fiend in the world. We love him and admire him, give him a million awards. Headlines in Jerusalem Post. You know what I mean? That people are teaching Torah day in and day out. That doesn't interest the Jerusalem Post. Clinton? What's the big deal? The guy has a second wife, a Pilegish. Nishkefelech. Rabbi is so, so saintly. He gave up meeting his wife. He used the word Mitzrayesh. So he doesn't want to meet her now. He has a second wife. And then Rabbi says, and as far as you say, that a person is 75 years of age, he was a lot older than you? So what? We have a concept of Cheskat Chaim. And nowadays, Rabbi Moshe says that people live a lot longer than 75. Interesting. See, what does Cheskat Chaim mean? If I saw you last alive, you soon you're alive. Well, obviously, if I tell you if my grandfather would be alive today, he would be 120 years old, I think we all understand that he wouldn't be alive. There were were two uh, Afro-American sisters who never married. I don't know, I read their biography. Maybe you'll identify them for me. I forget the name, but I read it. My wife said read it. It was easy reading. They're, they, they, they were, they, they, when they wrote the biography about four or five years, lived up in the New York Times, there, there were over 100. Very good health. Very interesting women lived in uh, Yonkers or Riverdale. Many Jewish friends. Very fascinating uh, volumes. A very fascinating volume. So they tell a story how they were accused of robbing the government. The government started sending letters to their heirs. How dare you take Social Security? These women can no longer be alive. They were in their mid-90s. They're alive and kicking and dancing and, and yelling and shouting and using the telephone. But the government figured out something's printed out on a computer that they're in their 90s, they can no longer be alive. So Rav Meshe says, so what if they would be 75 today? Today there's Cheskat Chayim Gamble Zaklin B'Shon HaMeil of Yad Piyoter. It's not 120. If you tell me you're 120, that's a different story. But 75, 80, 85, 90. We all know I had four deaths in my immediate uh, family and acquaintances. Each one was close to 90 or over 90. Each one, Mrs. Drazen died just uh, last week, 90 years of age, all right? 90 is 90. It's a chronicle of Racha. And he says, Rav Moshe says, however, if you could get testimony, see, he's trying to indicate to what he would need, if you can get testimony, he was captured by the Nazis, then already we might be able to do something because there, there's a rove gadol shergu at me Once they know he's a Jew, the Nazis took no prisoners. And hayam akom ladun betera. Then we could get started already with captured by the Nazis, the rove that they killed, avad zichro. We haven't heard from him in so many years. Aval lo that this is not known. Shelechein ein lahatira la nivet dati. And that's the way Moshe. Signs the Chiva, Hinaniya Didom of Archoba Aval Lachag Kasheva Sameach Moshe Feinstein. But you see, here already the Heta couldn't get off the floor. That peg on which they hanged the hat was lacking. 
the Heta could not get off the floor. So my dear friends, on this Sunday morning, the last Sunday of this past term, we finished out with many examples of heterogona. In every last one, outside of the last, we came up on top. When we came down to the end, we ran out of gas. We dealt with examples from the Tzemach Tzedek, the Chacham Tzvi, Elif Lecha Shlomo, two examples fascinating the whole question of a person who's constantly telling jokes, a let's, how does that affect his gestalt as a reliable person? It's a very fascinating psychological question. We dealt with the Aguna, the husband, the Russian Aliyah, Carmiel, the whole problem of Israel when Ani Rothkov becomes Aaron Rakefet, and there are a thousand and one examples. There was a student, the Colonel Levinson, a few years ago. He changed his name to Leif Zion. The last of his family to come on Aliyah, the whole family. You see, I found that certainly his mother's roots are from Jerusalem. So when he came into class, when he changed his name, and I called him Leif Zion, remember Hilo Leif Zion, the whole class left. I said, what are you laughing? He's Leif Zion, like I'm Rekhefet. No one laughs no more. Then they started thinking about it. Yeah, he's Leif Zion, Taka. They have a right to change your name. It's based upon a Rambam and Hilchot Shiva. A Baal Shiva is supposed to turn, change his name, right or wrong. I'm not the same person. When you come in Aliyah, you become a total Jew. You're reborn. You have to Shlomo? Absolutely. Get rid of that Gullis name. Hollander? Rekhefet. Beautiful. Hebrew name. Matthew, Matas Yahu, Bornstein. Get rid of that Gaiusha name. Schneider? Look what he's carrying on his back. German names. It's unbelievable. Young people, the next two weeks we'll be speaking in Lawrence, the Sunday afterwards in uh, North Miami Beach, Miami Beach. I'm all confused with my schedule. The third Sunday from now, God should spare us in health and happiness. I will be teaching right here in this room. Don't forget, two Sundays were knocked out, the third Sunday we're on. Now listen to me carefully. To the fellows in the Kolel, the Jewish agency runs a tour to show you what they do in Israel. I feel very bad for you boys because I see your schedule is being broken down orchestra into little parts. This one is speaking, that one is speaking. The week after this, there's going to be a full day tour with beautiful food and luncheon and a supper. And, and Reb David Miller is going to come to the supper and speak. The truth is, I used to do it every year. I'm not here when they want to do it this year. They can rearrange it, but from America, they can't rearrange it when I'm here. So they pleaded with me to plead with you to please devote that day to the Jewish agency. They give us money. They help pay for the program. They want to show us what's going on and do a special day for Orthodox rabbis. Why you? Because they don't want to mix us and I would object if they would mix us together with the Reforming Conservative. So I'm saying it, but there's so few fellows here from the Kolil remind me to repeat it t- tomorrow. Now a word about tomorrow. Tomorrow, when we pick up the Shia, by the way, it's a Vad Zichro, it's a different world. You're flying, you just, Halacha dances before your eyes. Rav Yitzhak, Isaac, Alevi, Herzak, etc. Tomorrow, Be'ezrat Hashem, we finish out the Agada, the Hagada, everything I spoke about last week. I have to say that you fellas, I could see that last week's year was, you treated it like precious diamonds. 
and it was it, it, it they were precious diamonds and we'll continue with those precious diamonds tomorrow in the Machshev I deal with one topic why Amin Raketvit was beaten to pieces knocked around smacked down without mercy both in a response written against me on the end of Sheni Shogalyat and by Rav Chaim Kriyaswith in front of hundreds of people, I would say. And I so regret that no one recorded If we would only have the recording of Rakefit's talk and then Rav Kriyaswith's talk, I would spend the whole hour and a half playing the two talks and then analyzing what I believe happened. Because your analysis and other people, everyone's giving you a different theory, you all are missing the boat. And first we have to deal with Yantav Shani, the Chiva, and then we'll have the key to the slaughter of Aaron Rakefet. But Baruch Hashem, like a cat, he popped up again despite his slaughter. Two lives are down, but the Holy Seven are still left. My dear students and my dear friends who honored me with their attendance, and I, you honor me, Chris, and the Kolil, this is a sinking ship today. These guys had a shear yesterday, last night. They have a guest rabbi on Tuesday. They have this exam and that exam. They are bothered. They are tortured. The Jewish agency wants to take them all over. So you'll ask all the guys that you meet, what do you think of Rakefet? Oh, great Rebbe, love his classes. How come you don't show your face? Oh, we wish we could. Halavai, we could. We can't. We got the exam. We got the pressure. Rakefet, all he has to do is know your name and you get the supplementary rabbinic credit for Rabbanon Lichtenstein. If you don't pass that exam, your head is chopped off. You don't pass the other day exam, you're flunked. You're no rabbi. Rakefet, he's the easiest guy in the world to get along with. So it's a hate-love relationship and I have to live with it. But tomorrow, I deal with the slaughter of Aaron Rakefet. Baruch Hashem, I'm here to talk about it. Yeah. What are you, David, I'm crying, uh, and you're laughing. Halavai, you should reach my age and be able to laugh after you're slaughtered without mercy. There is no mercy involved. Shech, benayt, sharpen it again. The Khalaf, look at it, check it. Pegimot, again and again. And my students sat there. No one, stand, no one stood up and smacked this man, knocked him to the ground, told him, you are married, you boy, you phony, you isheka. How dare you, that's our Rebbe in front of people, you know, people that always said, well, everyone sat there, took it, laughed, took it in. Brian Shalalem, slaughtered. Slaughtered in public. And alive to talk about it. Until we meet again in health and happiness. Das Thank you very much.